But I, I think I have to start with something uh, very boring. But why exactly is your first name Keno? Because <laughs> as far as I understand, you're German. And I've lived in Germany for 17 years or so. I think you're the first person I've ever actually heard the name. Yeah, so it's it's a bit of an unusual name. That's that's true. So I'm, I'm and is it Keno or? Yeah, it's Keno. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I'm um, I'm originally from the northwest of Germany, so Ostfriesland, and okay. it is a relatively common name there. So it's it's not super common there either, but it's like a traditional name from that area. Oh, I did okay. I didn't realize it was actually a German name. I thought it was something like oh my I don't know parents like Japan or something. Like that. <laughs> I don't. Know. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of people say that that it sounds like a Japanese name. Yeah, that that was my assumption. Maybe because it sounds like Kendo or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, so there's literally no story. It's just from the area, huh? That's weird because my family is also. I mean, not like northwestern Germany, but my grandparents' generation are from Emsland. Okay, yeah, that's pretty um, close. Okay. I mean, I have no real relation to that area. Yeah. Um, I've been there, I think, twice or something. But yeah, it still surprises me, though, that I've, ne yeah, I've never heard the name. Anyway, I guess that's not... <laughs> no, but it is a fairly sort of confined area where you would encounter that name. Um, so even in the M stunt, it's probably not something people would generally hear very much. Okay. Yeah, I mean, also the names that I'm familiar from from that area are, you know, two generations in the past. So everyone's right. called Helmer, basically. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so yeah, as I said, um, I'd like to talk about these two articles of yours I've read. Where does value come from and optimal utility and probability functions, etc. Um, and I thought maybe we can do that by talking about kind of how you got into that and how those projects started. Yeah. Um, and maybe the first question is just, so in 2012, you have a paper called The Social Side of Gaming, How Playing Online Computer Games Creates Online and Offline Social Support. How exactly do you go from there to <laughs> what you're doing right now and what you've been doing in your PhD? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, so when I was doing my, my undergrad in Hamburg, um, I worked as a research assistant in media psychology. So at the time I was, I was interested in like, yeah, media in general. And I also... Before I started studying psychology, I thought maybe I want to do uh, a politics degree. So this seemed like a good compromise to still be in touch with that. And while I really enjoyed working in media psychology, um, and where I also worked on this paper that we wrote together, I sort of realized that I'm more interested in sort of neuroscience. Um, so the brain, broadly speaking, uh, was what inter interested me more in my studies than, than media psychology per se. And then... When I did my master's, I did a project um, with Chris Summerfield, which developed into into a paper later on. So um, that's sort of when I got back into the um, decision making field, and I think that was my first sort of ex like first hand experience with uh, with that kind of area. But funnily enough, so this optimal utility functions paper builds a lot on um, what's called prospect theory, so like an economic theory from um, from the 1970s that sort of uh, incorporated a bit of uh, psychology into mainstream economics. And uh, that was a paper I wrote an essay on in my very first semester in Hamburg. Um, and I was really interest interested in that. So it's kind of funny that it's like a bit full circle. Uh, so it seems like you changed direction completely, but you, you know, wandered about a bit and came back to what you started with. Okay, yeah. But what was <laughs> your, um, I was also just generally curious um, uh, on I think it's the 
John's College or yes. College? Yeah. Um, it says, my background is in psychology and cognitive science, which sounds very mysterious. <laughs> was your master's then in Oxford or was it somewhere else? Uh, no, I did my master's in uh, Osnabrück. Oh, so. I should have, I had, sorry to interrupt, but I had, a, I, I thought, sh should I do the risky gamble or not of suggesting that you either did your uh, master's in cognitive science in Magdeburg or Osnabrück? I think those are the two places in Germany, right? Yep. Where a lot of, people seem to do very well afterwards after doing that masters and i thought nah it's probably not going to be true yeah it is it is yeah. <laughs> yeah um yeah so like after after my undergrad i yeah i took a year off and sort of thought about what i wanted to do and i um uh, i really wanted to go into research and the psychology degrees um as you probably know are fairly heavily focused on clinical psychology or organizational psychology so i really knew i didn't want to continue with that and then i just looked for good research focused degrees and cognitive science was one of them i'd actually looked at for my undergrad as well and then um, i was i really like that it's it's a very very flexible degree um so you can more or less focus on whatever you like as long as you take a few boxes um and that's where i learned programming and it fit into the program and it was uh was really good to, good to do it there can you talk just briefly about the program just because yeah as i said like i've I feel like half the, the people who studied for their masters in Germany, they did one of those two programs. Maybe that's wrong, but that's at least the impression I'm getting. So it seems to be a very good program that people seem to like quite a lot. And I'm also curious then, Chris Summerfield isn't in Osnabrück, right? And I don't think he ever has been. Yeah. So how did that exactly come about then? Yeah, so about the program. Um, so I think it's it's an excellent program for um, if you want to go into research. So if if you want to do something else afterwards, like actually work as a psychologist, for example, um, then it, it wouldn't be a good degree, but it, I think it's a good preparation for, for research because it's very flexible. And it also, um, at least in the undergrad, really focuses on philosophy of science, uh, philosophy of mind. Uh, you have to do lots of programming and mathematics courses, and you don't have to do those in the master's, but you can, and they're sort of easily available to you. And I did, did some of those. So it's, uh, yeah, it's really good preparation if, if you sort of want to pursue a career in something that's researchy, even if that's working for a company afterwards. And yeah, to, to answer your second question, when I, when I started in Osnabrück, uh, some people who were doing their PhD in Oxford, but had done their undergrad in Osnabrück, they contacted the Fachschaft, so like the, the student body of the course and asked whether people would like to do a visit to Oxford. And I was like, everyone said no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why would we want to do that? Uh, yeah, so I was one of the lucky ones who actually got to visit. And I, at the time, was thinking about doing my master's thesis like abroad anyway. So I was already thinking about somewhere in the UK. And then I just contacted a few people, and uh, Chris was one of them. And uh, yeah, he was fairly open to me doing that. So a year afterwards, I, I came over to do that. And I uh, haven't Ox left Oxford since, <laughs> essentially. Chris hasn't left you. <laughs> it's funny to me how like a lot of these things are just, you know, similar, like all of my master's programs, like uh, I'd, I had like something where I did two research projects mm -hmm. and all of them were just, I contacted people I thought whose work was interesting. And then for some reason they responded, which is always, I don't know, I guess like when you're, at, at that stage, I didn't necessarily assume they would. But. Yeah, it's it's easier than than you think, really, when you, when you try it. And 
it also seems a lot more intimidating to contact these people when you're just doing your yeah, masters exactly. you know you don't know how that that kind of interaction works so i definitely yeah it, it took me many hours probably to write these emails to people which is i mean also why <laughs> they were successful right i mean maybe I if you know. just write like yo chris <laughs> can i come hang out with you then? well actually i didn't I actually didn't address it to Chris because at the time um, his email address for the lab was NeuroNoodle uh, and it, it's still an inbox that uh, some people use for the lab. Uh, so I just addressed it as Dear okay. NeuroNoodle rather than Chris. <laughs> <laughs> That's a. How long did you think about whether you're going to write that? As Probably the, for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can I really write this? Well, it seems to work. Although we should probably say if there are people applying for master's projects only do that if that is the email address of the lab yeah, don't right, just randomly yeah. contact people with dear i probably made sure that it definitely was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay cool so it was it then i'm assuming i don't know how when you contacted the neuro noodle uh was it a fairly generic kind of like hey i think your research your stuff is cool can i do my master's project with you or did you come kind of with ideas already to do something specific? Uh, honestly, I don't really remember, but I probably didn't come with a very specific idea. Maybe I wrote about some things that I was interested in, um, you know, that I was interested in decision-making, and that's that's what he worked on, or still does. But I probably didn't have a specific project idea in mind. Uh, but I, I do remember that he gave me a lot of reading afterwards so for suggestions and asked me to have a look at that, and then we could figure out a project once I move to oxford okay so how do you go from master's projects to phd the standard route of applying for stuff or did he have funding or how does that work uh yeah so it's a bit different from germany maybe the way it works in oxford because it's an actual program so in oxford you, you can apply for open positions right and then it's like a it's like a job you're basically employed on the project of your supervisor that's not really something you you can do in oxford um so you do have to go the official route and uh, apply through the university program. Um, so I, I did that about a year after I did my project with Chris, I think, after I started maybe, because um, it's, like, it's one round a year. And um, then I had an interview and then there's usually a very, like a sort of uncertain long period of time when you get your offer, but you don't have funding yet. Um, so Chris said he might be able to fund me anyway, but there's, there's several rounds of internal funding that you might be able to get in the end. So after maybe three months. Oh, sorry, so you got accepted into the program and then the question was, they like they said like, okay, in principle, you can come. So the, the, the program isn't directly, acceptance of the program isn't directly linked to actual funding. No, unfortunately not. So I think they accept about 20 people every year and maybe 10 would get full funding from various sources. And I don't know how the other 10 really do it because you also have to pay tuition fees in Oxford, which is, uh, I think, about £6,000, which is just a home fee. So if you are yeah. if you have citizenship yeah, yeah, that yeah. isn't European, then it's at least twice as much, maybe even more. Yeah, so it's quite expensive for, for a program where you think, I don't actually do any... I don't actually take any teaching. <laughs> I'm just working here. So it seems like quite a lot of money if you don't get funding. And uh, well, it definitely is a lot of money. Yeah, but I was I was lucky that after a few rounds, I, I did get full funding for three years. And that, that's another thing, actually, that 
the people who do get full funding like me, they would have three years funding, but most people need about four years and I also needed four years. Um, so for, for the next, uh, for, for the last one year, you kind of have to either fund it yourself or get funding from your supervisor. So for me, it was a bit of a mix in the end. And I was also able to extend my funding a little bit because I, I did a, a visit to another lab during my PhD and then they sort of extend it afterwards. But that, that definitely is a, is a bit of a problem. Yeah. That's really weird. Like in a way, like it's, especially in the UK, I guess it's in Germany, it's becoming more common also, but it, you know, these three year PhD programs, I mean, you can finish in three years, but it seems to me from most people I've heard also who've done very well in their PhD, right? Like for example, you know, you had some very good publications out of it. It's not as if you were just sitting around all day, didn't get anything done. Most people say, it's, yeah, you need like four years basically. And yeah. yeah. So I wonder sometimes why they do these three-year things when basically everyone kind of needs more anyway. I guess it's so they can offer more positions, but... Yeah, I'm yeah. not really sure. And it, it also really depends on what kind of PhD you're doing. So in my program, it's, um, it's for the entire psychology department. So... If you're doing something like me where you just, you can do your experiments and some people might just do behavioral experiments that um, aren't all that time intensive to run or don't take as long to analyze. So you can definitely, if you really, really want to, you can probably do that in three years. But then others um, are doing, um, are working with uh, clinical populations. So um, mm -hmm. that yeah. will take at least a year or more just to set up your study and then you have to collect the data and find patients who want to enroll in your study and that's almost impossible to do in maybe even four years yeah some people would even need more time and some people do get an extension because of those circumstances yeah anyway so how so so before we started recording you said that the optimal utility paper kind of came first in a sense or that those you were early on more interested in those kind of topics yeah so in a way you can Kind of, so like sort of biographically, it fits very well with the very first study that I did with Chris, um, which was uh, another gambling study where we were looking at how people change their risk preferences based on how much money they've accumulated over repeated gambles and where, where and how that might be represented in the prefrontal cortex in the brain. And so I spent a lot of time working on Uh, utility functions and sort of economic decision making during that time. Then there was a bit of a break that's led to uh, eventually to that where does value come from uh, paper. And then um, this optimal utility function sort of circled back a little bit, but started off as a project that um, that someone else was leading actually, and I only joined it sort of halfway through. So this was like a very very collaborative project that I was sort of later. Um, sort of tagged on to because I, I had already worked on something similar. I see. So, I mean, I guess maybe if you weren't, I mean, you might not have been there right from the beginning, but what was kind of the the goal of this project? Or, yeah, do you, do you know how it started? Or I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of asking because I'm off right now, but, you know, I'm also in my PhD and I'm, you do these research projects and sometimes you have things that are very kind of clear cut and you have this idea, you do it end. Hmm. And sometimes you have these things that kind of shift and change as you do them. And, you know, you don't even know how many papers it's going to be or, yeah. you know, all these kind of things. So I'm just curious kind of 
what it was like for this one. Yeah, so for this one, um, it sort of started off as part of the research agenda by um, Bernhard Spitzer, who's a, one of the senior authors on the paper, who was doing a postdoc with Chris, Chris at the time. And he's been working a lot on how noisy encoding of decision variables. Um, so for example, we may not, like we might see a number of dots on the screen, but there's a bit of uncertainty about how many we might see at any given point in time, just because of some variability in in our internal processing. So he's worked a lot on, on that side of things. And um, he re was really interested in how you might apply this to economic decision-making as well. And um, I guess the, the overarching goal of this um, of this project was to, to sort of take these two phenomena that people don't encode value um, linearly. And um, they sort of, it's a very consistent finding that, um, for example, the difference between one and two pounds seems a lot larger than between 101 and 102 pounds. And that's a very, yeah, very consistent finding. And there are various um, hypotheses about why people might show such a pattern. And then there's a slightly, slightly disjoint set of findings about um, how people represent probabilities. And there the consistent finding is that you sort of over-represent unlikely events. So you think they're much more likely and that's maybe why people play lotteries, for example, and you at the same time underrepresent really almost certain events. And so um, when this project started, it it just seemed like maybe there's like a really simple set of assumptions we could make that would lead to sort of in a theoretical world would motivate why a decision-making system might have these distortions in the value and probability um, decision-making. Yeah, and I mean, those you said there's like two different things, but they kind of come from the same people or research area, right? It's kind of judgment and decision making. It's it's not like it's completely different fields, right? No, no, no. So, sorry, I meant that usually the when people have tried to to motivate why people have have this, for example, value distortion or probability distortion. Um, it's usually done separately rather than in an integrated way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in like a theoretical sort of way, they, they're often a bit disparate, but they are, they are two parts of, of the same problem, if you will. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, then the, the kind of origin story of the paper is then actually quite similar also to the way it's written. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, th I think so. This was kind of yeah. one thing I was curious about. Like, um, you know, you, you write about these two assumptions that you have in here. Um, the, that people, what is it? Value uncertainty, and the other is God. What's the other one now? Um, oh, it's the uh, noise. In this. Oh, it, the noisiness. Yeah, exactly. So if there's two, and I was curious, like, yeah, did this kind of come from someone just like messing around and <laughs> trying out different things? And <laughs> yeah, um, so the, the the noise was definitely at the beginning. That's uh, that's something that Bernie is really interested in in various domains. Um, so that was really the motivating starting point. And then, yeah, so, and then that's also kind of following how the paper is written is that when you just assume that people are a bit noisy in their decision making, you do get the, the value encoding for free. Um, so you, you find that an optimal decision maker that is a bit noisy should encode values, uh, more or less in the same way that, um, we find people to encode them, but you don't see that there is a similar probability weighting function. So. The, the optimal decision maker would essentially not differentiate between value and probability and encode them the same way. 
And so then we needed an additional assumption to motivate that. And then, as is assumed in a lot of psychological theories, of course, is that people value certainty and they, they just want to know what the outcome is, whether or not they're, um, they're getting it or not, whether they're sort of invested in the outcome. Uh, and then you, you just plug that in and uh, you then get this uh, probability weighting function for free as well. Uh, so it's just these really small assumptions in a sense. So uh, this is something that just occurred to me whilst you said it, is that, you know, okay, people value certainty, um, certain outcomes over uncertain ones. And there's obviously, a, it seems to me, there's a much more direct link here between that and the probability uh, distortions, mm -hmm. let's say, um, compared to uh, people have noisy decision-making and value, right? Th that's less tenuous. The other one seems fairly obvious, but then it's kind of, it just occurred to me, it's kind of, counterintuitive that if people value uncertainty they overestimate uncertain events and underestimate uh very likely but not certain events yeah so you really you really do need the combination i think of the noise and the valuation of certainty to get this pattern i think we've we might have tried this without the noise at some point and it didn't come out um so then and either a form that looks like the value encoding or a linear encoding is, is optimal, I think, but I'm, I, I'm a, I may be misremembering something here. Um, yeah. But so if one theoretical background to this was that um, in 2016, I think there was a paper about how the probability encoding might come from noisy encoding of probabilities. So sort of to backtrack a little bit um there's this kind of phenomenon in in auctions when so let's say i'm auctioning off a 100 dollar bill or something or sorry like a, a jar of 100 dollar bills and you don't know exactly how many are in there then okay. the final product that you might auction from me uh, like the, that you might bid on is worth exactly the same to anyone who uh, who placed bids on it but the person who is most optimistic will win um, and get get the money, but they were also likely a bit of overestimating compared to everyone else, and that's what's known as the winner's curse. And you can make a similar argument for for probabilities, uh, so that if you if your system is a little bit noisy, then the the fact that you chose something might just be driven a bit by your internal noise, and you have to correct for that. And um, then they've shown theoretically that one way to correct for this winner's curse, in a sense. Um, is by having exactly this type of probability uh, distortion. And the two of them together then lead you to... Yeah, so so something that their theory wouldn't be able to do is sort of differentiate between... So in, in our experiments that we ran, we had, um, uh, we had two different groups and they only differed in the type of feedback that they received. So one group would just get the expected value of an outcome. So for example, just multiplying the value and probability, and they would receive that. Um, whereas the other group would actually play out those uh, those gambles. And then so, because the labels were essentially the same and the, the experiment setup was identical, then if you encode probability in one way, then you should do it uh, for both groups. But we've sort of shown that it really depends on how things are, uh, how things are presented and whether things are actually risky or not. And their their theory wouldn't have been able to sort of um, make this distinction between 
the different experimental manipulations. Um, yeah. But it, so uh, I just want to sort of highlight that I think the contribution of our paper is that we have just two very simple assumptions that bring together these two findings that can be explained in other ways as well. It's not like we've we haven't come up with a with a completely new explanation, yeah. but I think we've this. It's a nice uh, a nice joint explanation, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not like you're the first people who ever. Yeah, exactly. No, by, not by not uh, by a long shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's only been like thirty years of people <laughs> doing that. But no, I, I mean, I do like the idea. I mean, I guess that's kind of the maybe often implicit goal of science, right? Is to explain. Um, as many things as you can with the simplest assumptions and this, the simplest model, right? That's kind of, well, I say implicit, but often it's also very explicit. Um, yeah. And I think, and so from that, yeah. So from that perspective, I think it's really nice that you also, you know, you also have assumptions that are, I, I think most people would agree with. I don't think there's anything controversial. You know, it's not like the kind of thing you have, like we have this model and it rests on a really weird <laughs> assumption. Um, it rests on assumptions that, they definitely make sense, I think, from a common sense perspective. Mm. Um, but they also just make, especially the noise part, just also makes from every scientific evidence thing. I think the certainty, I, I don't know too much. I mean, it's a common assumption everywhere, but I don't actually know how much that's been. I know that has been tested, right, with different gambles and that kind of thing. Yeah, so that there's also this literature on, um, on curiosity where, um, so if you, you can even study this with with monkeys, for example, where they might choose to play a certain type of gamble, and then they can additionally sort of pay or wait to see the outcome of that gamble, and they really really prefer that, even though it's it's non consequential to them actually receiving it. Um, and you can show the same thing in humans. So there's there's this kind of element of kind of wanting to know what you're going to get. And do you know what paper that is? The one with the monkeys. Uh, no, not off the top of my head. Um, it okay. might, we've, I'm pretty sure we've cited it. Um, okay, be. I'll have a look. I mean, I, I'm just asking because I always put all the papers we talk about in the description of the episode so people can, you know, don't have to search through forests, <laughs> right. but can just see what the relevant papers yeah. are. Um, okay, then I'll try and figure it out. But I can certainly find it as well and send it to you. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Actually, was it something you wanted to say before I something? Okay, no, not sure. not, I'll just continue. <laughs> uh, so uh, there's kind of one big picture question I have, which is something that occurred to me whilst reading your paper and related papers recently, mm -hmm. is that it seems to me there's kind of, it seems to me there's, there's in science, you always have this back and forth, right? Someone says something, then people say, well, it's actually not that right. And then, you know, you go back and forth on these things. Um, and it seems to me when it comes to op uh, kind of optimality um, and how on rationality in these things, it seems to me that we're, we've kind of reached the third level of this conversation now, where at first, the first level is kind of people say like, this is kind of expected utility theory. This is how rational people behave, that, or, you know, mm, that kind of yeah. stuff. And then the kind of, let's say, behavioral economics view then came along and said, like, well, actually, people don't do this. Look, here's all these experiments that show that people don't do this. And it seems to me we've kind of now reached the third stage where people say, okay, people don't, people aren't like rational according to 
expect utility theory, let's say. And they do have these biases, but the biases are actually rational once you account for the fact that it's a biological organism do it and it has certain limitations. And to me, at least, it seems like that's kind of where we're at right now, where your paper included. There's this kind of slight, let's say, behavioral economics maybe overcorrected and now kind of correcting back and saying like, well, there's some, there is some rationality. It's not completely wrong. Is, is that a fair assessment? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's certainly a, a good element of it. And that's kind of what I like about this research area is that recently there have been a lot of uh, attempts to bring it back a bit to biology. And so I, I guess when I, when I started maybe my master's or something like optimality, like it, it always sounds so, so final in a way. It's like, you know, some things are optimal and others aren't. But really, just about anything can be optimal as long as you just define your your criterion correctly, right? So I think there's, and it's just that people just assume that, you know, the criterion that people maximize is money or or some other good that, that you might uh, might look at. Um, and that's, that's clearly not how it works in biology. And um, we, we sort of first have to really think about what is it that biological organisms are optimizing for. And um, then, then the questions become a bit more fraught and, and intricate. So is it fair to say then that the, it's just the, the, the kind of expect utility theory, um, the people who did that assumed a specific context and thought it was the context you know, the context of optimizing how much money you make. Whereas if you, as you said, it can be, depending on context, uh, lots of things can be optimal. So it's more a matter of, yeah, they just chose one context rather than any of the others that exist or... Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm just, yeah. Well, I also think, I mean, it's it's a very flexible theory. Like the there's a, a huge range of uh, actual decision rules and functions that that it can accommodate so it's um it's not necessarily that it's sort of clear cut what what it should the final product should look like but what it, i think what what it's really highlighting and sort of what i take from it is that what what people really should be is consistent so if you're mm-hmm. you can optimize whatever and you can have whatever preferences but i should be able to predict that if you do something in context a you should do it again in context a and maybe switch in a different context but there should really be this element of consistency and um, Mm -hmm. i think for for a lot of economic decisions whether i want to invest my money somewhere or which job i take based on certain criteria there probably is a fair amount of consistency most of the time so i do think it it probably comes close to that but there still is sort of like that that lurking background question of, yeah, what's the sort of thing that you might be optimizing that this thing would then give you consistent preferences for? Mm, not sure exactly in some of the last sentence. Yes, yeah, elaborate on that a bit. Um, I mean, biological systems optimize various variables, right? So you might be like something that I'm interested in is sort of how can how do you get from that to having consistent preferences in this super artificial paper money or digital number system um, where you suddenly 
have people make broadly good decisions and they might be slightly off sometimes and slightly biased, but broadly they're sort of they're they're as as you assume they might be. Um, but how did the system sort of evolve and what is it optimizing for that? That's actually something that's that's possible that we could in, could invent it a few thousand years ago to have such a system. Okay, so so where do you? Uh, one kind of question I had also when I gave like my very brief overview of of these kind of three stages. Where do you think this is going? I mean, so now we have this more like making it realistic, you might say, or, or yeah, for for a biological organism that humans are, just making it realistic. Is that kind of the end stage of figuring out exactly how that would work, or is there kind of a, a next a next stage for um, the kind of evolution of this argument? You know, like once once you figure that out, what do you, what do you think is where does that lead us? <laughs> um, so, I, I guess something that um, that you really want to focus on probably is you want to be able to measure people's behavior in certain situations and you want to be able to transfer that to new situations so you can you're good at predicting things that you haven't observed yet and i think we we can probably do that in like monetary decisions but i don't think we're very good at uh, at doing that for more mundane and everyday decisions and i think where where that where this whole literature might be going is to focus a bit more on transfer and generalization and that's certainly where the at, at least in, in my own sort of view of this which is of course biased in some ways is where the decision making literature is seems to be going as well it's like a, a big focus on you observe something in context a and you want to be able to predict something in context b sort of the stability of it but in this case where the contexts are quite different rather than this kind of gamble versus this other monetary decision but you mean like more kind of saying okay how do these kind of gamble findings or how do our predictions that work here do they also work for i don't know eating or do they work for i don't know what to i guess yeah what job to do whatever right like just that kind of thing you mean it's kind of, yeah yeah for example yeah well, like maybe there are, so people might have measured people's utility functions and then used to predict whether they want to play some risky gambles or whether they want to take out insurance and that kind of stuff. Uh, and that might work quite well. But maybe there are, there are even different types of measurements that we want to take maybe in completely different tasks that better describe how people will behave in, um, in other situations. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it's, a, it's often a question of like, well, what do you want to use it for? And like, if you, if if you just work, say in the financial industries, then you probably don't need to need to worry about this too much because uh, your your yeah. models are sort of approximately fine. But if you if you're interested in how all of this is implemented in the brain, then I think it mm -hmm. it, it matters quite a lot. Right, right. Yeah, is uh, this kind of relates to something I just wanted to ask, which is kind of what why are we searching for optimality or deviations of optimality? What exactly is the point here? So. I sort of alluded to this earlier as that um, I think we you should be careful of calling something optimal or appealing to optimality. But what I think it's very good for is to from a sort of modeling and understanding perspective. So if you have if you have a model that makes certain assumptions about what is being 
well, I want to say optimized, but something that's uh, that it's trying to achieve in a way, uh, which is, I guess, the same yeah. way of saying it. <laughs> to say that's um, yeah. Then, uh, then you can sort of see where how far that theory can push you and um, use it to to make predictions about where you should pose your next experiment or maybe look for brain signals you know, anyway. And that's, I think, where um, appealing to some sort of optimality is, is good for you. And, and I think we, we implicitly, we, we do that for most aspects of science, um, but we, we may not, like as, as, as soon as you're using some kind of model, there is some implicit appeal to, to optimality sort of baked into it. I mean, it seems to me in the, you know, in physics, let's say, if you have a theory of gravity that doesn't optimality, like, it seems to me like there it might not be a, cons you know, you don't go, is the gravitational system optimal with response? Right. Like, you just go like, how how accurate am I describing this, right? So is it is the difference here that the the thing that you're modeling has a, is trying to do something rather than just existing? In that sense, is that the difference here, or? Yeah, I, th I think part of the difference is that you have a system that makes decisions, and it makes decisions to some end, um, and right, and right. usually just um, just having descriptive theories are, you know, they're they're nice, but they they usually don't make um, very strong predictions about about situations that are outside of the things that you've you've looked at. And for that, I think it's mm -hmm. from a sort of understanding perspective. I think it's really, I, I, I tend to personally think of it as like a, a tool for understanding more so than necessarily saying that this is exactly what people like. That there is some some wheel in their head that counts. Um, like, am I really certain or uncertain? Um, so yeah. it's, I think it's like a, a epistemic sort of tool. Yeah, and I mean, I, that's also kind of what you wrote a few times. I think your abstract and the end of the significance paragraph, this kind of idea that, you know, actually having some sort of causal explanation rather than a mere description. And yeah, as I, say, I agree, like descriptions are perfectly fine. That's also how you start, right? Yeah. Uh, you don't start by <laughs> causally describing something before you know what, you'd, what you're looking at. But yeah, I guess, I guess that is kind of the nice, to maybe slightly maybe close off this part a bit i think what the nice thing about this paper is that yeah you have these two fairly basic assumptions that aren't even particularly specific to the context right um, necessarily that you're looking at and that through that you can achieve this kind of not exactly cause understanding but it's it's a potential explanation of these things that people have been talking about for decades now yeah yeah, I have to ask one question though, which is something sure. something I was curious about, and I think it's like one of the last sentences you have. It's actually yeah, the very last. Maybe I'll just read this. Nor does our theory consider the most distinctive contribution of prospect theory the intuition that computation of value is reference dependent, with all utilities evaluated relative to a status quo given by the current context. The normative properties of such reference dependence, for example, in the context of efficient coding and efficient computation, have been discussed elsewhere. So I haven't read this paper by Sommerfield and Tetzos, but just briefly, does your, so I'm kind of partially interested in these kind of losses and gains things. Mm -hmm. Can your paper say anything or your, your kind of model say anything about that? Or is it really just 
this only works in the in the game context. <laughs> Don't ask me about losses. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't looked into the the loss framing that much, so I'm not sure what the model would predict there. But I I don't see any reason why it why it shouldn't be able to at least. I mean, it's essentially just the the same function. It's just flipped. The only thing that it doesn't that it, that I'd be surprised if it really fit was whether people are more loss averse, like have a have a stronger coding for losses than they do for gains. So uh, I'm, I don't think that the model would necessarily do that. So you're assuming a symmetric? Yeah, I mean, for, for the purposes of the paper, we were sort of uh, assuming that there are no losses uh, at all. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I guess we're sort of uh, avoiding that question a little bit. Um, but I, I mean, there's, there's been a... I mean, there's ongoing debate about how much of a thing loss aversion really is. Yeah, definitely. so it it may not be as strong as we might have assumed a few decades ago, anyway. And the sort of, I think the more general point is that, so just by saying that there are gains and losses, you're already assuming something like um, like prospect theory, because losses are actually also not defined in um, an expected utility function, and it's sort of earliest incarnation so that that is an additional assumption that we've sort of just implicitly made and your your reference point might switch and like turn losses into gains and vice versa um, in various interesting ways but we're just not looking at it we're just assuming that there is a reference point that you're using yeah i mean so one reason i was asking about this is because this is something i'm kind of this is a kind of i guess like meta science how to how to do science and also like what a paper exactly is because so this is something i've been so i did i did basically the first thing i did with my phd and it's it's not out yet um and we still want to do like at least one experiment but it seems right now that we ha we don't exactly we kind of did a different decision making context a more social context and we find not exactly the the traditional loss aversion definition in terms of different slopes for positive and negative values mm -hmm. but People definitely try and avoid losses in this context. So I had this kind of very simple way of testing this where, okay, something could be a gain or a loss. And I had this like very neat way of doing it. And I was very happy with that. And then, but it avoided zero because zero in this context was difficult to interpret. And mm -hmm. uh, in the way that I set it up, it made it a bit awkward. And I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just do gains and losses, right? Like don't care about zero right now. I'll figure that out later. But then at some point as I was, you know, analyzing my data and thinking about this, I thought like, are you stupid? You can't do a theory about like how people behave in this and just avoid the concept of zero. <laughs> like it's a, it's a real thing. You can't just pretend it doesn't exist. But it seems to me that's kind of exactly what you said you did, right? And my question there is kind of like, I guess the general question is kind of like that I'm struggling with is like when is a paper finished and how much does a paper have to achieve? Right. Um, because it seems to me that saying like if you do something that is about like gambles and things you know, working out to different degrees um, in terms of how much money you get. It seems kind of so incomplete to not include nothing happens or you lose money. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm just curious, like, how you think about that kind of problem. Right. So, I, I guess the... So, we're implicitly assuming, I guess, that the zero point for people is just however they come into the experiment. And then 
um, like nothing happens would be one of the possible outcomes of um, of the gamble. So in one of the groups, at least, um, we did have that nothing happens. But yeah, the more general point of like, when is a paper finished? I mean, I think that's a, yeah, that's that's very difficult. <laughs> I mean, um, that's why I'm asking like, you and not vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it, I mean, like when you, when you have a paper, I think it, it should make a, an interesting point about some phenomenon and ideally also include maybe some, some modeling where you might uh, sort of, again, have a more theoretical understanding of, of what you're looking at. And if that's then also surprising, then maybe it gets into, uh, into higher journals because that's sort of what they reward, I guess, whether something's surprising or not. But I personally um, don't think that a paper really, like as long as you're not writing a theory paper and it's still about sort of empirical data, I don't think it needs to look at all the different aspects that you might also look at, I guess, um, from one theory. So I think we've we've sort of just taken the like the, the sort of basics of the problem and just looked at those and then you can do a follow-up study. We might do, I mean, we don't have very specific plans at the moment, but there, are, we probably mentioned those in the discussion that there are like various ways in which you could extend this. And I think like, yeah, having the solid base that you can sort of work off is I think then worth publishing. Um, and then either you or other people can, can work with that. Because otherwise you'd, you'd probably just end up having huge projects that, either take years to completion or maybe never get finished because you also have to do other things and probably need like sadly enough you also need some papers like fairly regularly so that's there's definitely an incentive to maybe be a bit more incomplete yeah that's that's another problem where i basically have like these few experiments that are kind of smaller experiments we did and they seem to kind of work out and then I realized, like, well, I can actually generalize this to a much broader way of testing it. Um, so not like so specific to this one task, mm. but it's a much more general way. But then I realized, like, well, if I do the second, the first one basically doesn't matter anymore because the second one kind of includes the first one in some sense. So, like, do I even need to publish the first thing? Like, because, you know, if I publish that and it replicates in the other one, then it's like, okay, mm. the second one by itself would have said that. If the first one doesn't replicate, then, you know, you've created a story around something that doesn't work. <laughs> so however long it took you to finish the second one. So, yeah, but then I also, you know, I also know that, yeah, if you don't publish stuff, you're not going to get a job afterwards. So it's, yeah, but, yeah, I find it a really difficult problem. But I think there's also, a, like, it's also a communication aspect, I think, in that, like, you might go to conferences and talk to people, but really the major way you communicate with other scientists is through your papers. So if you, um, if you have a, something that, that you believe in and you've sort of made sure that, you know, you've ruled out other alternative explanations and stuff, then it may be worth publishing just for that aspect of it, that you're, that, that other people then know about it and, um, they can take it and do, what, do whatever they want with it. Um, even, and then maybe it, doesn't replicate in your own work and then you can say that later on um and i guess that, that's just what happens like no not everything will replicate 
Yeah, and I guess, I mean, yeah, it's not like we're, you know, doing something and then, you know, p-hacking or pulling yeah, no, that exactly. isn't in there. <laughs> you know, there, there was a, like, initial thing that we wanted to do and it seems to work out. So it's not like, yeah, we're, we're presenting exploration as hypothesis-driven research. But, um, yeah, it just feels, it feels so... Yeah, I don't know, like I'm not, it feels a bit like I'm not doing a proper job in that sense. You know, present the, like present it once you're finished, right? Rather than, mm. but yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's hard to say from like as a, as a sort of general yeah, point, abstract, I think, yeah. but yeah. Um, yeah, if you, if you think that what you, what you have at the moment makes, makes a valid point, then you might think about publishing it now or if you think that maybe in a year's time you have something more general that makes a uh, a valid point that's bigger than it would this. make the same point but yeah but also from a practical practical perspective so de- depending on on what the point is that you're making if you have something that already went through peer review that you can point to that might reinforce your people might be more inclined to um to take it um take it seriously if there's already published evidence on it Depend depending on how no, how novel it is, but it, it might be a problem you Yeah, I don't know novelty. In, I have to admit, like uh, I think when you're, especially when I was in my bachelor's and masters, it seemed always like you know people have these findings that come out of nowhere, and then once you you start doing the field, you realize like eh, that already existed. Why is this in like <laughs> you know psychological science or whatever? Like why is this such a big deal? So yeah, uh, I think I still have a lot to learn about. Academia as a as an enterprise <laughs> rather than science per se. Yeah, and I mean the novelty is like you have to ask yourself novelty to whom, right? It's like something may be very well established, like some some methods, for example. Like there are, in neuroscience, there are a lot of methods that now come from physics um, or even pure mathematics. And if you showed this to a mathematician, they'd be like, well. Well, duh, I already know this and it's been proven for many years. Yeah. But uh, neuroscience is still, like, it hasn't been applied yet and people still need to sort of know about it. So I think it, it's really easy to, like, when you're so deep in a topic um, and you, you read widely, then it might seem that something you know that it is, uh, that it's maybe been around for a while, but that may not be the case of, of a lot of other people. So it might still be worth it. Yeah. Like, as long as you obviously you shouldn't you shouldn't then sell it as being something very novel, but that might explain why why some things sort of get um, get rehashed uh, a few years later. Yeah, I mean that's always the kind of classic thing, right? You think you have this new thing, and then there's ten papers from the '60s or something that uh, I've been cited like ten times, and they kind of already did what you wanted to do. <laughs> Although I like finding those papers, it always feels like a found something hidden that no one knows about <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> anyway i think um shall we uh, end my therapy session and start talking about your other paper <laughs> <That's true. laughs> so very dramatically i'll turn the paper <laughs> so i have it in front of me um so the other paper is where does value come from and can you maybe explain what exactly the problem is with reinforcement learning that you're highlighting in this? And and if you can do so, maybe also explain what reinforcement learning is, but maybe we have to do those in two separate steps. Sure. So I guess the, the problem that we're interested in here is where um, an agent, so for example, a person or an animal interacts with 
with an environment and um, so they they do something and then they see how the environment reacts to it so for example you might um, might go into your kitchen and eat something and then um, what in reinforcement learning is classically assumed is that you would then um, or have an observation which is sort of like the world has changed after you've acted so what does it look like now and you also get a signal that you might call reward where it's sort of telling you how good or bad it was that you've just done and both of these things at least classically come from the environment so it's something external to you and then you take this um, this reward signal and you want to get most reward over a long period of time so you you sort of like a, a rational agent that wants to maximize its reward or happiness or whatever else you might want to call it. But then the problem that we're we're highlighting and is that at least in psychology and neuroscience, we often assume that we know exactly what that reward is. So it, it's fairly straightforward. If like people are gambling for money, like in our recent study, then it's probably fair to assume that this is what they're interested in maximizing the the amount of money they gain over the course of the experiment. But things are a lot less clear if you include things like um, social decision-making or even just things like when you decide to eat and when you decide to drink something or when you decide to exercise and, and so on. Um, so the problem that we're interested in is like what an agent or a biological system has to do is it sort of takes the observation from the environment, but it then sort of splits that into... This is how the world has changed, but also something that I can use as a learning signal to make better choices in the future. So I think if you've already alluded to this, but I don't think it's maybe not said exactly the what you call the reward paradox between this kind of like the reward is out there, but then it also kind of has to be generated internally. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, so in like I said, in in most scenarios where when reward is generated and when the environment gives you reward is either given by the experimenter so exactly when i pay out money or um, when you're teaching a an artificial system uh, it receives these numerical rewards once in a while when it does something good uh, like for example a self-driving car when it just when it doesn't veer off the road then it gets a reward for example and um in in neuroscience we might for example, if, if we're doing experiments in rodents or monkeys, then uh, they would be in a state where they're actually, where we know they might be hungry or thirsty, so that then giving them a food or drink reward is rewarding to them, which it otherwise wouldn't be if they weren't hungry, for example. So we're deliberately putting pe people or animals in that position where that we're fairly certain that that's what they, um, they're interested in. But we don't really consider that, well, that's also a kind of decision that our system has to make by itself. Like it, it sort of needs a, needs a separate layer to the, to the whole learning problem where you're using that reward signal to, um, to teach yourself how to behave better. But you're also sort of, in the first place, you need to decide what is it actually that I want? And that's probably easy for things like hunger and thirst, like, you know, our, our bodies tell us fairly explicitly that that's uh, that's what we should be doing but it becomes a very difficult problem if like for things like you know what career do i want to pursue or things like that and we, we just want to highlight that in even in sort of fairly basic problems where you might be pursuing two goals rather than just one goal 
there there's already a lot of a lot of interesting data that we might want to look at that um, whether where there's where people might deviate from from sort of classical assumptions and again we're sort of been at different bits of economics that have looked at that of course over um in the sort of aggregate but we just like with this paper we sort of wanted to highlight that that's not being considered as much in psychology and neuroscience at the moment yeah i mean this is something i'm really interested in because you know i do social neuroscience so this kind of the social aspects are so, you know, people's motivations for, for behaving, let's say, in a classic economic game. You know, there's always all these different considerations that go into it. So that, that's kind of why I find, you know, I think also why I start, why I read this paper is just because it kind of has this, um, I'm really interested in this. How do you behave if you're, you know, you're not just trying to make money from a gamble thing where basically that's the only thing you're trying to optimize. But what do you do if you have, you know, you're interacting with someone you let's say you know them or only a bit or something you also want to make money but all these kind of things that suddenly flow into that um right that's something i'm really interested in and maybe can you then so it, it seems to me kind of your tentative suggestion or maybe a bit more than tentative suggestion is to use this thing called homeostatically regulated reinforcement learning or that that is a theory that tries to has tried to address this or something yeah um i'm not really i haven't been familiar with this outside of what i've read from your paper although i'll certainly read papers from that soon but what does that exact what does that add to reinforcement learning and how specific is it to homeostatic homeostatic processes so the the specific bits that we talk about in the paper are taken from um from a paper by Mehdi Karamati and Boris Kutkin, who've sort of taken the decades old literature on homeostasis and sort of try to stick that into reinforcement learning. And so this is essentially just providing a way in which if you, let's say, have a goal, which might be, you know, I don't want to be hungry, I don't want to be thirsty, then um, you can easily use the system that they've described to generate rewards that then you can learn about as a as a reinforcement learning agent and they've shown that in, in a lot of different scenarios um it accounts for empirical data from um i think they exclusively talk about rodents so we're sort of saying that well maybe if you sort of take the essence of this as like there are probably goal sta states in the world like you want to finish your phd and that sort of decomposes into you know i want to publish this paper and then work on that paper and how do you then use that knowledge to to motivate yourself and to teach yourself whether something was good or bad so we're sort of saying that well it's it's essentially a, a comparative process so you have like a an understanding or like a sense of where you are and a sort of sense of your your goal state and you're you're trying to measure the distance between them in some some arbitrary way and then as long as you decrease the distance to that you're rewarding yourself and if you're moving away from it you're not rewarding yourself you may be punishing yourself and um so we're sort of using this framework that exists for sort of low level decision making and saying maybe we can take it also to more abstract sort of decisions and there's nothing inherently that makes i mean i guess you suggested it as a general kind of thing not just something that works only for specific kind of decision processes right yeah i think it would 
it's fairly general. So the way we've pre- what we've presented in the paper, which is like strongly based on the Karamati and Goodkin work, sort of assumes that your your set point or your goal is always fixed. That's obviously not the case for a lot of interesting problems, um, yeah. and so the goalposts are constantly evolving, and um, so that would, of course, require quite a bit of extra work to make that fit. But I think the sort of what I liked about their framework when reading about it, and when we've already collected data that sort of that spoke to this, um, and it's also something we talk about in the paper. I just think that it's a really important process that we should think about, like what is the what is the reward generating process and what are some properties of that that we might want to measure? And I think that's something that really there hasn't been all that much work on. And um, it's certainly an active area in, uh, in like machine learning in, in some ways where you might teach your system to, to learn from experience that maybe going through a doorway is a good idea or something if you want to explore an area. But I think we've, yeah, we, we don't know a whole lot about these phenomena and it really to me, like something I wanted to highlight with the paper is really that that is a process that we really should think about more, uh, especially if you want to talk about more human-like phenomena. Like you know, you're you feel satisfied when you reach a goal, or you feel disappointed if it becomes unavailable, um, and then sort of like yeah, asking yourself where where does that that signal come from? How does it originate? And then it that's maybe not quite easy to figure out (laughs) yeah Yeah, i mean because um i did have a slight one thought i had was reading is just like what does this actually add that isn't already in the homostatically regulated reinforcement learning framework is it is it this kind of combination of saying look people are doing this thing in this context but we should also do it in this context do you see kind of what I mean? Because at some point I thought like, but they've already said what's in the homeostatic context. Like, I mean, for me it was useful just to, you know, obviously I invited you because it was an interesting paper, <laughs> because I thought it was pointless. And, um, but do you see kind of the, what I'm trying to get at? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, so, I mean, sort of the, the way this paper started was as a kind of discussion of the work that I'd done during my PhD. So that's sort of like we we sort of wanted to have a something that summarizes the findings from my from my PhD, and those are those are sort of heavily based on um, that there might be certain goals that people are trying to achieve, and so these are the, the studies that we talk about. And then later on, we sort of found that the framework that they have for homeostatic uh, decision making actually might fit this quite well. So it's it's right that the the framework that we're describing here is essentially their their sort of mathematical framework but it is a very it's a very different type of problem that we're interested in that they don't consider at all in their paper Um, so it's like yeah again sort of taking that which which you rightly say existed but um combining it with the work that we've done that might speak to it in in the different domain of human decision making Mm-hmm. Uh, so still a few kind of they're, they're all kind of general but not super linked so I'll just ask them probably <laughs> as a list mm-hmm. uh, in the next few minutes um, one question I had was so you have this so you say okay we, you know the question is where does the value come from and 
then you say, okay, we have these goals, we're trying to minimize the distance to it. Isn't that in some, so, so now the problem is where do goals come from? And I think right. this is also a header you have in here, right? Um, or something like that. Um, I mean, is to, to, another kind of critical question I had was to what extent is this not just substituting one mystery with another? Or is that just what we do in science? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I th so, I mean, sure, it's a, it's a different, uh, like, it's a very difficult problem to think about, um, you know, where are these, these goals coming from? But I do think it's a, it's a separate but related problem because you can, you can then have a system that tries to come up with good goals, for example, exploring your environment in certain ways. And then you can ask, what is the, the reward signal that that system is generating to teach an agent how to behave well? So you've sort of, you can then look at two different aspects, essentially of the same problem and interrogate whether maybe those signals that are generated by your goal system are reflected in some lower level brain areas. And um, as a sort of second point, I think, I do think that these map onto different brain areas. So I think that the um, reinforcement learning problems that um, we might study in, in animals, they're often primary reinforcers so food or drink rewards and it's quite quite likely that these are fairly hardwired systems that rely on brain systems that are fairly ancient but then we also have this this whole lump of brain in the front of our head that sort of um is the most expanded compared to to other primates and humans and um this is that's the sort of area where we find things like uh, longer temporal contexts and um, reversals and control that's um, switching be between different tasks that we might be doing. Uh, so I do think there's there's at least that's sort of what I what I think might be the case is that um, thinking about things as sort of like higher level states or goals is more likely to explain activity in prefrontal areas, whereas something that's like fairly low level like rewards might be more able to explain things like the basal ganglia, for example, where, where you might have in, investigated that. But so another question related to that is, isn't, it seems to me that it's kind of circular though, right? In the sense like, okay, why do you have goals? Because of rewarding. So like, why would you have a goal if it's not rewarding? So then, yeah. <laughs> right. I think that's, I mean, that that's true if you just have one goal, but if, as long as you have competing goals, then do, you can ask yourself, do they compete as a sort of pre-reinforcing state or do they compete at the state where you're, where you are reinforcing your actions? But I don't know. I mean, that's like, I guess like the, the sort of brain starts with like fairly simple mechanisms, um, evolutionarily speaking, and then it sort of adds, adds new, new layers to it. And I think all we're really saying is that, yeah, there's, there's, there's a new layer to it in a way. And these are the kind of, problems as it might try to solve or it might be involved in solving. Yeah. So I guess like it's also a question of granularity, I guess, in the sense that um, if you, if you take classical reinforcement learning, then rewards are defined as a sort of state by state kind of signal. So on every single step, you might get a reward signal or um, something like that, but you might want to have a sort of on top of that, you might want to have different layers of abstraction that sort of decompose the problem into, I don't know, 
rooms or like sub goals like writing a paper or something like that and um, we know that there certainly is something that, that that the brain certainly does that in in various domains um but i guess we're the specific point we're making is that it also like that is where you generate your rewards from it's not at a lower level and i mean so i'm assuming that this is something that's not that well studied um, but one thing I'm curious about is that, okay, so you have, you know, you have a goal that uh, consists of multiple dimensions. So let's say it's just two, right? As you do in your paper. How do, so in the, in the, I think the paper, if I remember correctly, you, they're linear related, right? Both are equally weighted and that kind of stuff is, has much been done on what happens if you have multiple goals that have different importance to the person, um, and these kind of things. Uh, yeah, so that's, so if you just look at decision making, um, then there's quite a large literature in, in economics that would look at, they might call it indifference curves or rates of substitution where you might have a good, uh, good A and a good B and you have different preferences according to those. So you might be willing to give up five units of A to get one more unit of B. So you sort of lie on these indifference curves where the whole the yes. whole bundle of things is still worth the same but you might require that you get a large amount of one good for giving up a small amount of of another so there's definitely a good literature on that and there's another uh, sort of more psychological literature on if you if you have things that have different attributes so i don't know you're um I don't know, going on a holiday you might think about um the hotel, the city, and, and so on. And you might want to integrate that into a single decision. But for for what we're interested in is sort of like where not all of these attributes will factor in, in the decision that you're making. So it might be that you, you have these discrete things that you collect that are only, only rewarding in one dimension, but not the other. And so you're like, you're, you're continuously changing, changing the state that you, you're in or the amount of resources that you have, which is uh, a bit different from like, the multi-attribute sort of view but there are certainly uh, literatures that will probably have good links to to this yeah i need to i really need to read much more about reinforcement learning it's like one of those topics i keep kind of <laughs> i want to get into but then i keep like you know doing these other studies um i mean it's incredibly vast so um yeah. it's very easy to get overwhelmed <laughs> yeah. actually that's a very good link to what i want to talk about next not exactly being overwhelmed but um, on a kind of general level about doing a PhD, mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I'm still, I, I don't know how to solve. And um, it's obviously no, I'm assuming, maybe you have it, but I'm assuming there's no one fits all solution. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you have it, feel free to say it. But like one thing in terms of that I especially have is that it's just how both in sense of like, is it possible? And also in sense of like, what other steps and practically how would you do this how am i supposed to learn all this stuff because you have this you know if you want to do anything interesting you have to you know not necessarily have to but you combine different things that haven't been combined before mm -hmm. right so in my case it's you know if you have social decision making or neuroscience i'm interested in the kind of game theoretic aspects i'm you know interested in the kind of cognitive and computational neuroscience things yeah 
Um, there's also this whole evolutionary biology stuff. There's, you know, basically it seems like most disciplines do game theory in some way or another, or it relates to it. This is leaving out all the technical aspects, learning how to program, learning how to do all the open science stuff, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm just curious, like, for example, how do you go about learning reinforcement learning? Maybe as one example, like, is it, yeah, other than reading your paper, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean you just have to remind yourself that whatever topic you're studying you probably can't read everything anyway so there's definitely like free yourself of the illusion that you haven't read everything yet because you haven't it's impossible um <laughs> and that's particularly the case for something like reinforcement learning there's like probably more papers published in a day than i could read in a month so yeah, you you just have to have to like get yourself to a, a state where you feel confident that you can run your experiment. I think you know you you don't just stop reading and learning then, right? But there 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 probably is a point where you if if it's very new to you, you might be a bit unsure about it, and you just have to I guess trust your supervisor that they they get a sense of is this going to be novel and well-motivated for the community that you want to address this for. That's almost the hardest part for me, though. Like, I don't know what community I want to address. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just want to do my thing. That's the kind of... Ugh. Yeah, I mean, that's that's good. I mean, you'll you'll find a place for it in the end if you, yeah, yeah. If you do what, what you're interested in. And that's definitely the main thing, I think. Yeah, and it is also more confined. Um, I think, you know, because, I mean, at some point we did think like, is this what we're doing relevant, like for ec economics or something, right? Because I've been reading a lot of economics papers over the last two years. And, but at some points you realize like, no, they won't care. <laughs> this is, and I actually had someone who knows a bit about the field tell me this, like, they won't care about this. Like, this is, this is trivial to them because they don't, you know, they have different goals mm. and aims and questions and that kind of thing. But, I'm curious, actually, so on a practical level, mm -hmm. like how do you, let's say you want to learn something new, let's say you say, okay, I, I don't know, you want to get better at probability theory or whatever, you know, something that's not, it's direct, it's related to what you're doing, but it's not something you're going to learn on the job per se. Yeah. But might have these kind of long-term benefits. I, I keep like going back and forth whether I should do it in a block and just like take a course mm -hmm. and online or something and just do it in like, you know, two weeks and do it once or to kind of spread it out over like half a year or a year because then you know both have kind of advantages and disadvantages but yeah yeah no. so if it's something quite mathematical i personally find that quite difficult to just learn on my own um or just from from reading and doing my own exercises so for that i would definitely recommend doing courses if you can and um for me personally it would make more sense to do that as a like as a block or like a maybe one or two month kind of thing these things also take a long time to learn so you, you will have to invest a good amount of time but um something that definitely hasn't worked for me was doing a little bit of it two hours a week and then i do it for a couple of weeks and then it sort of fades into the background and then i don't get back to it so um, if you're anything like that to just do the block course and that's also something that's really difficult to do once you're no longer uh, sort of a student. Um, 
because then it, you you know now you can you can rely on all the resources at the university and maybe even officially enroll in some courses. And afterwards, it becomes a bit harder to do these sort of fairly mathematical kind of things. I think we could still attend them, right? Or I don't or, know. Maybe it depends. Yeah, on the it depends. Country, maybe. But... I mean, there's also enough enough online courses that that you can do. But I guess what really helps with these, like doing the actual physical courses, is that you would then be able to go to tutorials and you have exercise sheets, and that's kind of necessary, I think, for for something as practical as learning how to do certain mathematical things. Yeah, have you had to do lots of that? I'm just curious, like for. Because I guess, like, the, yeah, like for example, your PNAS paper. There's, you know, there's some mathematics in there, but none of it is exactly world changing. Yeah. But I'm curious, like, how much you need to know to do that kind of stuff. Is it, you know, some basic algebra, and then you're good to <laughs> <almost>, or? <laughs> um, I guess it's also the question, like, like, how much do you have to learn about something, right? Yeah, I guess it. It, it depends a bit. Like, if you're, if you're interested in in the human behavior of it, then you probably don't need to worry too much about it. Um, Cause then you won't be someone who's like coming up with a new theory for which you probably have to do like lots of proofs and, and so on. Um, so I think for, for everyday work, like a good basic knowledge of calculus, algebra, probability theory will probably get you a long way. But then for every, for every kind of project that I did, I did have to read up about some specific things. So for example, for this one, I had to read more about various types of probability distributions. For example, the Gumbel distribution that I hadn't really encountered before either, but it was turns out to be quite important to it. And uh, yeah, but you, I mean, I don't think for psychological research, you really need that background. It's certainly helpful if you have it, I guess, but yeah. So, so was it for you then a kind of having a a base knowledge of those three areas you mentioned, and then advancing as needed on the job? Or yeah, I mean, in in some in some ways, I sometimes would have wished I had a better formal mathematical background, especially when you're, as I'm sure you're doing as well, if you're reading economics papers, they're quite, you know, they're quite mathematical and. Yeah maybe not always written in a way that's very reader friendly. Yeah. yeah. So for those, I, I, I often wished I had a, had a stronger background in either the maths behind it or the formal economics, but yeah, it's a, a good base knowledge gets, gets you quite far. I think. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, one thing I find just really interesting is that, for example, we did this linear algebra course that, we kind of organized for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we had this like MIT open courseware stuff and used that. And then we did this once a week and then we got about halfway through and then people went on holiday and everything fell apart right. and never started again. So that's exactly the way you described it. Um, and actually that worked fairly well, even though we didn't have anyone who kind of knew what, what they were doing, helping us or anything. But for example, what I found really interesting is, you know, we just did this further than I needed to really for what I was doing and then suddenly you know then you realize a few months later it's like oh this is how this thing works like I can explain this thing now I didn't even know that this was what it was mm. but now that you know you know it it's these things become so much easier and then so since I had that realization I think like ah oh, 
Maybe I should learn as much as I can. <laughs> But I guess, I guess there's again the practicalities, right? Yeah. I mean, I would certainly recommend doing that, but it is very time intensive. So there's, there's a trade off. Uh, it seems like you don't have a one fits all. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> God damn it. Okay. Um, uh, maybe as a kind of moving towards the end. Let's say people are interested in, you know, let's say they've read the PNAS paper or your where does value come paper, where does value come from paper, and say, okay, this sounds very cool. Um, I want to get started with this kind of stuff. So, what would you, uh, what what are some kind of resources people might use? I mean, there's obviously the references in your papers, but those aren't necessarily the best places to start. Yeah. Um, so I don't know for kind of reinforcement learning or not exactly what we would call the optimal utility paper in terms of research area, um, judgment, decision making, optimality kind of thing. But do you have any kind of suggestions where people might start and what to? Yeah. So if for the, so starting with a more economic optimal utility functions paper, I did find it kind of hard to find good good tutorials or resources on that when I started with this. I mean, this was like at the beginning of my PhD, not not necessarily for this paper. I'm I'm not so a good resource as for sure the the Kahneman and Tversky prospect theory paper. That's relatively straightforward. And to have this sort of described in um, in words, like not necessarily the maths behind it, but to get a sense of why certain like why economists have come up with all of this. I really enjoyed reading a book by Richard Thaler, who received the Nobel Prize in Economics a while ago, uh, called Misbehaving, I think. So it's, like a, it's a collection of lots of different behavioral economics findings. And he's also kind of... I mean, that's his biography, right? Autobiography. Well, it's a scientific biography, maybe. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It's not about his like, family life, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed reading that, and it did give me some yeah. some valuable background knowledge about uh, my research. But yeah, you probably won't get around reading some fairly tedious papers along the way, I guess. So that's like the maybe slightly more difficult area. But for reinforcement learning, uh, because it's such a big thing at the moment, there are a lot of tutorials and online resources that um, some of which are really really good so the thing that I really enjoyed and uh, where I sort of learned about the the more machine learning side of it was David Silver's UCL reinforcement learning course so that's fairly complicated. the ones on YouTube right? that one's on YouTube yeah started that never um, yeah, I enjoyed the first two lectures. Unfortunately, <laughs> I never listened to watch the rest. <laughs> well, uh, it it is good if you have a reason to watch it. I think like it's yeah, you sort of need the motivation to to be able to use it fairly soon afterwards. I think. Um, yeah, there's that. Um, is the 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 reinforcement the reinforcement learning book a good starting point or? I've heard from some people that it gets basically what you're interested in as a psychologist and neuroscientist is like the first few chapters and then it's just computer science stuff that no one, like we wouldn't care about. I, I haven't read it yet. That's right. So the first few chapters are definitely 
the, the ones that you'd be interested in as a psychologist and afterwards, depending on what your specific area of, of interest is, it will still be interesting probably, but it becomes more more technical towards maybe after sector, chapter seven or eight. But it, it is a it is well written and I and I enjoyed it as well. And so Chris actually uh, has a, a sort of manuscript that he uses to teach a course. I think it's called How to Build a Brain. So that's a uh, this is this is like aimed at undergraduates in their third year. I think that sounds like my level. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's uh, I haven't read all of it, but the bits that I read, I, I quite enjoyed, and it's quite accessible. So that that's maybe a good easy starting point for people. It's on it's on the on the lab website somewhere. Uh, okay, good. Then I'll find it. Yeah, uh, how to build a brain from scratch. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. That sounds like. Uh, Oh god, it's fourteen megabytes. There's <laughs> lots of pictures. <laughs> it's it's oh, oh, it's actually like a book kind of, thing, or it's two hundred eleven pages. Oh, there's there's, there's pictures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for a second I was like, oh, that's that's a long thing. But yeah, uh, that's cool. I didn't probably learn more than than I'm willing to admit on that one. <laughs> Although I guess that's well, I certainly learned a lot from it too. By the way, one thing that just uh, I also realized is that the um, about like resources. One book that I've really enjoyed. I'm not. I'm not even sure how much it's going to help you become a better scientist. But I found it, I really love reading it. Is the uh, the Kahneman Tversky kind of double biography or working relationship biography by Michael Lewis? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether you've read that. Yeah, I don't um, think so. Yeah, that's a really. I mean, Michael Lewis is the. If you don't know him, he's a nonfiction writer who. Uh, for he had like a few years where like all of his books were made into cinema film, like into films, uh, like uh, The Big Short, Moneyball, The Blind Side, a lot of those. I'd really be surprised if the Kahneman Tversky book isn't made into film fairly soon because it's just it's just absolutely lovely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that might be another one. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Okay, cool. Then maybe as my kind of last question is. Uh, What's next for Kino Yuhim? <laughs> and maybe related to that, just something I meant, I realized or noticed something, I noticed something you said earlier about, um, you know, your bachelor's was very clinical and you weren't really interested in that on your kind of St. John's website thing. It does mention though you're uh, interested in applying this to patients with mood disorder. Is that kind of the outlook for the next few years or? Uh, so that there would be some aspect of what I'll be working on. Probably for the rest of my fellowship in some ways. How long is that? Uh, so I have it fixed a year and a half and probably an, a year extension afterwards. Um, so still, still a good amount of time. But it's now, so if we really wanted to do work with clinical uh, populations, then it's already maybe a bit late to finish it in the time frame. Um, but it's certainly something I'm, I'm interested in to collaborate with people. I'm not seeing myself move into that like as a sort of full-time sort of commitment. I'm, I, I do get most enjoyment out of the the basics of neuroscience and psychology. And uh, yeah, so more practically, like yeah, I still have a bit of time on, on this fellowship. And um, partly because of the pandemic, I've switched a bit more to some theory work with kind of machine learning methods to that would generate kind of what I talked about earlier that so that that might give you a teaching signal that's like oh you might want to explore this doorway or you might want to use the information you have from previous uh previous tasks to sort of 
come up with good guesses of what you might be doing in a certain kind of task. So I'm working on on that fairly technical side of things at the moment, partly because I didn't have the chance to do more brain imaging, which I would have normally done, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we'll see what happens then. So after that, it's just open. Geographically, are you you've been in Oxford now for a while? <laughs> do, you, do you want to stay there? Or is, I don't know. I'm just curious in terms of I haven't been in one place for longer than 18 months, basically, mm-hmm. uh, since I left school, I think. Um, so I'm always fascinated by people who spend lots of time in one place. <laughs> um. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I really like Oxford. Um as a place and also as a research environment. And there are a lot of people who work on similar problems, not necessarily directly in Oxford, but London is just around the corner. So it's a great place to be, but it's also obviously very difficult to stay after after a while. Um so um yeah. uh, I'm not like fixed on the idea that I want that I'm <laughs> going to stay here realistically as well. Um and then yeah, I would favor somewhere in Europe, but I'm not necessarily fixed on it. Mm, okay. I guess we'll see.